Section 8 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Section 8. Tom Chist and the Treasure Box. Part 1. An old-time story of the days of Captain Kidd. Subchapter 1. To tell about Tom Chist, and how he got his name, and how he came to be living at the little settlement of Henlopen, just inside the mouth of the Delaware Bay, the story must begin as far back as 1686, when a great storm swept the Atlantic coast from end to end. During the heaviest part of the hurricane, a bark went ashore on the Hen and Chicken Shoals, just below Cape Henlopen, and at the mouth of the Delaware Bay. And Tom Chist was the only soul of all those on board the ill-fated vessel who escaped alive. This story must first be told, because it was on account of the strange and miraculous escape that happened to him at that time that he gained the name that was given to him. Even as late as that time of the American colonies, the little scattered settlement at Henlopen, made up of English with a few Dutch and Swedish people, was still only a spot upon the face of the great American wilderness that spread away with swamp and forest, no man knew how far to the westward. That wilderness was not only full of wild beasts, but of Indian savages, who every fall would come in wandering tribes to spend the winter along the shores of the fresh-water lakes below Henlopen. There, for four or five months, they would live upon fish and clams and wild ducks and geese, chipping their arrowheads and making their earthenware pots and pans under the lee of the sand hills and pine woods below the capes. Sometimes on Sundays, when the Reverend Hilary Jones would be preaching in the little log church back in the woods, those half-clad red savages would come in from the cold, and sit squatting in the back part of the church, listening stolidly to the words that had no meaning for them. But about the wreck of the bark in 1686. Such a wreck as that, which then went ashore on the hen and chicken shoals, was a godsend to the poor and needy settlers in the wilderness where so few goods ever came. For the vessel went to pieces during the night, and the next morning the beach was strewn with wreckage. Boxes and barrels, chests and spars, timbers and plank, a plentiful and bountiful harvest to be gathered up by the settlers as they chose, with no one to forbid or prevent them. The name of the bark, as found painted on some of the water-barrels and sea-chests, was the Bristol Merchant, and she no doubt hailed from England. As was said, the only soul who escaped alive off the wreck was Tom Chist. A settler, a fisherman named Matt Abramson, and his daughter Molly, found Tom. He was washed up on the beach among the wreckage, in a great wooden box which had been securely tied around with a rope and lashed between two spars apparently for better protection in beating through the surf. Matt Abramson thought he had found something of more than usual value when he came upon this chest, but when he cut the cords and broke open the box with his broad-axe, he could not have been more astonished had he beheld a salamander, instead of a baby of nine or ten months old, lying half-smothered in the blankets that covered the bottom of the chest. Matt Abramson's daughter Molly had had a baby who had died a month or so before, so when she saw the little one lying there in the bottom of the chest, she cried out in a great loud voice that the good man had sent her another baby in place of her own. The rain was driving before the hurricane storm in dim slanting sheets, 
and so she wrapped up the baby in the man's coat she wore and ran off home without waiting to gather up any more of the wreckage it was parson jones who gave the foundling his name when the news came to his ears of what matt abramson had found he went over to the fisherman's cabin to see the child he examined the clothes in which the baby was dressed they were of fine linen and handsomely stitched and the reverend gentleman opined that the foundling's parents must have been of quality a kerchief had been wrapped around the baby's neck and under its arms and tied behind and in the corner marked with very fine needlework were the initials t c what do you call him molly said parson jones he was standing as he spoke with his back to the fire warming his palms before the blaze the pocket of the great coat he wore bulged out with a big case bottle of spirits which he had gathered up out of the wreck that afternoon what do you call him molly i'll call him tom after my own baby that goes very well with the initial on the kerchief said parson jones but what other name do ye give him let it be something to go with the sea i don't know said molly why not call him chist since he was born in a chist out of the sea tom chist the name goes off like a flash in the pan and so tom chist he was called and tom chist he was christened so much for the beginning of the history of tom chist the story of captain kidd's treasure box does not begin until the late spring of sixteen ninety nine that was the year that the famous pirate coming up from the west indies sailed his sloop into the delaware bay where he lay for over a month waiting for news from his friends in new york for he had sent word to that town asking if the coast was clear for him to return home with the rich prize he had brought from the indian seas and the coast of africa and meantime he lay there in the delaware bay waiting for a reply before he left he turned the whole of tom chist's life topsy-turvy was something that he brought ashore by that time tom chist had grown into a strong-limbed thick-jointed boy of fourteen or fifteen years of age it was a miserable dog's life he lived with old matt abramson for the old fisherman was in his cups more than half the time and when he was so there was hardly a day passed that he did not give tom a curse or a buffet or like as not an actual beating one would have thought that such treatment would have broken the spirit of the poor little foundling but it had just the opposite effect upon tom chist who was one of your stubborn sturdy stiff-willed fellows who only grow harder and more tough the more they are ill-treated it had been a long time now since he had made any outcry or complaint at the hard usage he suffered from old matt at such times he would shut his teeth and bear whatever came to him until sometimes the half-drunken old man would be driven almost mad by his stubborn silence maybe he would stop in the midst of the beating he was administering and grinding his teeth would cry out why ye say not why ye say not well then i'll see if i can't make ye say not when things had reached such a pass as this molly would generally interfere to protect her foster son and then she and tom would together fight the old man until they had wrenched the stick or strap out of his hand then old matt would chase them out of doors and around and around the house for maybe half an hour until his anger was cool when he would go back again and for a time the storm would be over besides his foster mother tom chist had a very good friend in parson jones who used to come over every now and then to abramson's hut upon the chance of getting a half dozen fish for breakfast he always had a kind word or two for tom who during the winter evenings would go over to the good man's house to learn his letters and to read and write and cipher a little 
so that by now he was able to spell the words out of the Bible and the almanac, and knew enough to change tuppence into four halfpennies. This is the sort of boy Tom Chist was, and this is the sort of life he led. In the late spring or early summer of 1699, Captain Kidd's sloop sailed into the mouth of the Delaware Bay, and changed the whole fortune of his life. And this is how you come to the story of Captain Kidd's treasure box. End of Subchapter 1 Subchapter 2 Old Matt Abramson kept the flat-bottom boat in which he went fishing some distance down the shore, and in the neighborhood of the old wreck that had been sunk on the shoals. This was the usual fishing ground of the settlers, and here old Matt's boat generally lay drawn up on the sand. There had been a thunderstorm that afternoon, and Tom had gone down the beach to bail out the boat in readiness for the morning's fishing. It was full moonlight now, as he was returning, and the night sky was full of floating clouds. Now and then there was a dull flash to the westward, and once a muttering growl of thunder, promising another storm to come. All that day the pirate sloop had been laying just off the shore back of the capes, and now Tom Chist could see the sails glimmering pallidly in the moonlight, spread for drying after the storm. He was walking up the shore homeward when he became aware that at some distance ahead of him there was a ship's boat drawn up on the little narrow beach, and a group of men clustered about it. He hurried forward with a good deal of curiosity to see who had landed, but it was not until he had come close to them that he could distinguish who and what they were. Then he knew that it must be a party who had come off the pirate sloop. They had evidently just landed, and two men were lifting out a chest from the boat. One of them was a negro naked to the waist, and the other was a white man in his shirt-sleeves, wearing petticoat breeches, a monterey cap upon his head, a red bandana handkerchief around his neck, and gold earrings in his ears. He had a long plaited queue hanging down his back, and a great sheath-knife dangling from his side. Another man, evidently the captain of the party, stood at a little distance as they lifted the chest out of the boat. He had a cane in one hand, and a lighted lantern in the other, although the moon was shining as bright as day. He wore jack boots and a handsome laced coat, and he had a long drooping mustache that curled down below his chin. He wore a fine feathered hat, and his long black hair hung down upon his shoulders. All this Tom Chist could see in the moonlight that glinted and twinkled upon the gilt buttons of his coat. They were so busy lifting the chest from the boat that at first they did not observe that Tom Chist had come up and was standing there. It was the white man with the long-plated queue and the gold earrings that spoke to him. "'Boy, what do you want here, boy?' he said in a rough, hoarse voice. "'Where do you come from?' And then, dropping his end of the chest, and without giving Tom time to answer, he pointed off down the beach and said, "'You'd better be going about your own business, if you know what's good for you. And don't you come back, or you'll find what you don't want waiting for you.' Tom saw in a glance that the pirates were all looking at him and then, without saying a word, he turned and walked away. The man who had spoken to him followed him threateningly for some little distance, as though to see that he had gone away as he was bidden to do. But presently he stopped, and Tom hurried on alone, until the boat and the crew and all were dropped away behind and lost in the moonlight night. Then he himself stopped also, and looked back whence he had come. There had been something very strange in the appearance of the men he had just seen, something very mysterious in their actions, and he wondered what it all meant, and what they were going to do. He stood for a little while thus looking and listening. He could see nothing, and could hear only the sound of distant talking. What were they doing on the lonely shore thus at night? Then, following a sudden impulse, 
He turned and cut off across the sand hummocks, skirting around inland, but keeping pretty close to the shore, his object being to spy upon them, and to watch what they were about from the back of the low sand hills that fronted the beach. He had gone along some distance in his circuitous return when he became aware of the sound of voices that seemed to be drawing closer to him as he came toward the speakers. He stopped and stood listening, and instantly as he stopped, the voices stopped also. He crouched there silently in the bright, glimmering moonlight, surrounded by the silent stretches of sand, and the stillness seemed to press upon him like a heavy hand. Then suddenly the sound of a man's voice began again, and as Tom listened, he could hear someone slowly counting. Ninety-one, the voice began. Ninety-two, ninety-three, ninety-four, ninety-five, ninety-six, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, one hundred, one hundred and one the slow, monotonous count coming nearer and nearer. One hundred and two, one hundred and three, one hundred and four, and so on in its monotonous reckoning. Suddenly he saw three heads appear above the sandhill, so close to him that he crouched down quickly with a keen thrill, close beside the hummock near which he stood. His first fear was that they might have seen him in the moonlight, but they had not, and his heart rose again as the counting voice went steadily on. One hundred and twenty, it was saying, and twenty-one, and twenty-two, and twenty-three, and twenty-four. And then he who was counting came out from behind the little sandy rise into the white and open level of shimmering brightness. It was the man with the cane whom Tom had seen some time before, the captain of the party who had landed. He carried his cane under his arm now, and was holding his lantern close to something that he held in his hand and upon which he looked narrowly as he walked with a slow and measured tread in a perfectly straight line across the sand, counting each step as he took it. And twenty-five, and twenty-six, and twenty-seven, and twenty-eight, and twenty-nine, and thirty. Behind him walked two other figures. One was the half-naked negro, the other the man with the plated cue and the earrings, whom Tom had seen lifting the chest out of the boat. Now they were carrying the heavy box between them, laboring through the sand with shuffling tread as they bore it onward. As he who was counting pronounced the word thirty, the two men set the chest down on the sand with a grunt, the white man panting and blowing and wiping his sleeve across his forehead, and immediately he who counted took out a slip of paper and marked something down upon it. They stood there for a long time, during which Tom lay behind the sand hummock watching them, and for a while the silence was uninterrupted, in the perfect stillness Tom could hear the washing of the little waves beating upon the distant beach, and once the faraway sound of a laugh from one of those who stood by the ship's boat. One, two, three minutes passed, and then the men picked up the chest and started on again, and then again the other man began his counting. Thirty and one, and thirty and two, and thirty and three, and thirty and four. He walked straight across the level open still looking intently at that which he held in his hand, and thirty and five, and thirty and six, and thirty and seven, and so on until the three figures disappeared in the little hollow between the two sand hills on the opposite side of the open, and still Tom could hear the sound of the counting voice in the distance. Just as they disappeared behind the hill there was a sudden faint flash of light, and by and by, as Tom lay listening to the counting, he heard, after a long interval, a far-away muffled rumble of distant thunder. He waited for a while, and then arose and stepped to the top of the sand hummock behind which he had been laying. 
He looked all about him, but there was no one else to be seen. Then he stepped down from the hummock and followed in the direction which the pirate captain and the two men carrying the chest had gone. He crept along cautiously, stopping now and then to make sure that he still heard the counting voice, and when it ceased he lay down upon the sand and waited until it began again. Presently, so following the pirates, he saw the three figures again in the distance, and, skirting around back of a hill of sand covered with coarse sedge-grass, he came to where he overlooked a little open level space, gleaming white in the moonlight. The three had been crossing the level of sand, and were now not more than twenty-five paces from him. They had again set down the chest, upon which the white man with the long queue and the gold earrings had seated to rest himself, the negro standing close beside him. The moon shone as bright as day and full upon his face. It was looking directly at Tom Chist, every line as keen cut with white lights and black shadows as though it had been carved in ivory and jet. He sat perfectly motionless, and Tom drew back with a start, almost thinking he had been discovered. He lay silent, his heart beating heavily in his throat, but there was no alarm, and presently he heard the counting begin again. And when he looked once more, he saw they were going away straight across the little open. A soft, sliding hillock of sand lay directly in front of them. They did not turn aside, but went straight over it, the leader helping himself up the sandy slope with his cane, still counting and still keeping his eyes fixed upon that which he held in his hand. So Tom followed them cautiously until they had gone almost half a mile inland. When next he saw them clearly it was from a little sandy rise which looked down like the crest of a bowl upon the floor of sand below. Upon this smooth white floor the moon beat with almost dazzling brightness. The white man who had helped to carry the chest was now kneeling, busied at some work, though what it was Tom at first could not see. He was whittling the point of a stick into a long wooden peg, and when, by and by, he had finished what he was about, he arose and stepped to where he who seemed to be the captain had stuck his cane upright into the ground as though to mark some particular spot. He drew the cane out of the sand, thrusting the stick down in its stead. Then he drove the long peg down with a wooden mallet which the negro handed to him. The sharp rapping of the mallet upon the top of the peg sounded loud in the perfect stillness, and Tom lay watching and wondering what it all meant. The man, with quick repeated blows, drove the peg farther and farther down into the sand until it showed only two or three inches above the surface. As he finished his work there was another faint flash of light, and by and by another smothered rumble of thunder, and Tom, as he looked out toward the westward, saw the silver rim of the round and sharply outlined thundercloud rising slowly up into the sky and pushing the other and broken drifting clouds before it. The two white men were now stooping over the peg, the negro man watching them. Then presently the man with the cane started straight away from the peg, carrying the end of a measuring line with him, the other end of which the man with the plated cue held against the top of the peg. When the pirate captain had reached the end of the measuring line, he marked a cross upon the sand, and then again they measured out another stretch of space. So they measured a distance five times over, and then, from where Tom lay, he could see the man with the cue drive another peg just at the foot of a sloping rise of sand that swept up beyond into a tall white dune, marked sharp and clear against the night sky behind. As soon as the man with the plated cue had driven the second peg into the ground, they began measuring again, and so, still measuring, disappeared in another direction, which took them in behind the sand dune, where Tom no longer could see what they were doing. The negro still sat by the chest where the two had left him, and so bright was the moonlight 
that from where he lay tom could see the glint of it twinkling in the whites of his eyeballs presently from behind the hill there came for the third time the sharp rapping sound of the mallet driving still another peg and then after a while the two pirates emerged from behind the sloping whiteness into the space of moonlight again they came direct to where the chest lay and the white man and the black man lifting it once more they walked straight away across the level of open sand and so on behind the edge of the hill and out of tom's sight end of subchapter two subchapter three tom chist could no longer see what the pirates were doing neither did he dare to cross over the open space of sand that now lay between them and him he lay there speculating as to what they were about and meantime the storm-cloud was rising higher and higher above the horizon with louder and louder mutterings of thunder following each dull flash from out of the cloudy cavernous depths in the silence he could hear an occasional click as of some iron implement and he opined that the pirates were burying the chest though just where they were at work he could neither see nor tell still he lay there watching and listening and by and by a puff of warm air blew across the sand and a thumping tumble of louder thunder leaped out from the belly of the storm-cloud which every minute was coming nearer and nearer still tom chist lay watching suddenly almost unexpectedly the three figures reappeared from behind the sand-hill the pirate captain leading the way and the negro and white man following close behind him they had gone about halfway across the white sandy level between the hill and the hummock behind which tom chist lay when the white man stopped and bent over as though to tie his shoe this brought the negro a few steps in front of his companion that which then followed happened so suddenly so unexpectedly so swiftly that tom chist had hardly time to realize what it all meant before it was over as the negro passed him the white man arose suddenly and silently erect and tom chist saw the white moonlight glint upon the blade of a great dirk knife which he now held in his hand he took one two silent cat-like steps behind the unsuspecting negro then there was a sweeping flash of the blade in the pallid light and a blow the thump of which tom could distinctly hear even from where he lay stretched out upon the sand there was an instant echoing yell from the black man who ran stumbling forward who stopped who regained his footing and then stood for an instant as though rooted to the spot tom had distinctly seen the knife enter his back and even thought that he had seen the glint of the point as it came out from the breast meantime the pirate captain had stopped and now stood with his hand resting upon his cane looking impassively on then the black man started to run the white man stood for a while glaring after him then he too started after his victim upon the run the black man was not very far from tom when he staggered and fell he tried to rise then fell forward again and lay at length at that instant the first edge of the cloud cut across the moon and there was a sudden darkness but in the silence tom heard the sound of another blow and a groan and then presently a voice calling to the pirate captain that it was all over he saw the dim form of the captain crossing the level sand and then as the moon sailed out from behind the cloud he saw the white man standing over a black figure that lay motionless upon the sand then tom chist scrambled up and ran away plunging down into the hollow of sand that lay in the shadows below over the next rise he ran and down again into the next black hollow and so on over the sliding shifting sand panting and gasping it seemed to him that he could hear footsteps following and in the terror that possessed him he almost expected every instant to feel the cold knife blade slide between his own ribs in such a thrust from behind as he had seen given to the poor black man 
So he ran on like one in a nightmare. His feet grew heavy like lead. He panted and gasped. His breath came hot and dry in his throat. But still he ran and ran until at last he found himself in front of old Matt Haberson's cabin, gasping, panting, and sobbing for breath, his knees relaxed and his thighs trembling with weakness. As he opened the door and dashed into the darkened cabin, for both Matt and Molly were long ago asleep in bed, there was a flash of light, and even as he slammed to the door behind him there was an instant peal of thunder, heavy as though a great weight had been dropped upon the roof of the sky, so that the doors and windows of the cabin rattled. End of Subchapter 3 End of Section 8